As you're taking your seats, you can grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air and we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. We would love for you to take a copy of God's Word home with you. If you don't own one, uh, this is our gift to you today. So just take it with you and we just trust that you will be blessed and encouraged as we open God's Word even now. That is our prayer. It's, uh, it's great to be reminded that the Bible is filled with new beginnings. Redemptive stories are at the very heart of the Christian faith. God will often throughout Scripture take a person like Moses or David or Peter, people who have made a wreck of their lives, who have fallen into sin, sometimes even deep and grievous sin, and he will restore them, renew them, and he will repurpose them for his kingdom use. We see in Scripture God loves to take a nation like Israel, a nation that is broken and sinful, that so often wanders away from God, falls into idolatry and immorality, and yet God will take that nation out of exile and renew them, restore them, and repurpose them for his kingdom and for his glory. Our God is a God of new beginnings. Our God is a God of fresh starts. And that's good news for us because we are sinful human beings who regularly need a new beginning and a fresh start. Can I get an amen? I don't know where you've been this week. I don't know where you've been this month. I don't know where you've been this year. Or maybe you've been walking far from God for a significant period of time. The message of the Bible is clear. No matter how great your sins are, the grace of God is greater. No matter how much you've been walking in death, God can bring you back to life. And that's the hope that we find in this passage here. We need to hear this regularly as Christians because, listen, life is hard, Satan is real, and sin is pervasive. We are constantly in a battle. We're constantly in a war. We constantly struggle and fail and fall. And it is God who is gracious and merciful to pick us back up every time we come running back into his loving arms. I love what Jeremiah says in Lamentations, and I hope this hits you this morning or this afternoon with new purpose and refreshes your soul. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Noah is an example of this new beginning and fresh start. We see that actually in a couple of different ways in this very passage. That's how often we need fresh starts. Sometimes it's in the very same chapter that somebody gets two new fresh starts. It should not surprise us that this comes so early in the Bible after the creation account that we see God creating, in effect, a new beginning a fresh start. And Noah is a kind of new Adam. 
And we're going to see some striking parallels between Adam and Noah in this passage. And I hope they are not lost on us as Noah steps out of the ark in chapter 8. On top of that mountain, he is looking across a new world. It's a sort of new creation. And we're going to see it's going to come with a new fall and new mercies. And it's going to come with new choices. And so as we look at this text today, I want us to see that God loves to give fresh starts. God loves to breathe life and hope into those who are dead, those who are weary, those who are struggling, those who fail, those who fall, and those who see their need of his grace and mercy. What does God want us to do with these fresh starts? He's going to encounter us with a fresh start. The question is, what does God want us to do with these fresh starts? We can draw a lot from this example of Noah in this passage as he steps out into this new world. I want us to see first that God gives us a fresh start to promote the propagation of life. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. We'll read to verse 7, and I want you to notice that there are bookends here that frame this section of God's word. You'll see it hopefully clearly by the time we get to the end. It says this, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man." Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. You cannot miss the emphasis of God in this new world, in this new creation. The point he is emphasizing so clearly is that God wants to promote the propagation of life. He wants life to continue and he wants life to flourish. You'll notice the very beginning, the be fruitful and multiply language is intentionally drawing us all the way back to Genesis 1, 28 and 29. That should come to your mind almost immediately, and especially if you've been with us through this study in Genesis. Right after God gives this first uh, commission or demand or command, excuse me, to the man and the woman, uh, God says in Genesis 1, that they are to have dominion over the animals. Just notice the parallels that are being drawn here from this text. But there are some distinction amidst the parallels. What we see here first is that the fear of man has come upon the animals. In other words, the earth no longer displays the harmony of paradise that it once did. Even the animals coming to the ark, you can kind of envision this picture of harmony. They come willingly. They're they're unafraid. There's this comfortability in the animal kingdom and in the human kingdom. Everything kind of meshes together so beautifully and so peacefully. 
but now there's fear. I don't know about you, um, every once in a while I, I get uh, on a, I go down that vortex of watching, you know, when animals attack. Anybody done that? Like those kind of videos? This is where it begins, right here. Okay, that's the implication here. All of a sudden, there is disharmony between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. We move from this holy dominion to this tyrannical dread as things have been altered. It's not just the topology and the geography of the world that's been altered. Everything has shifted and changed. We also have some interaction with Genesis 1, 29 and 30, and you'll notice that Moses again intentionally draws our attention to that. He alludes to the fact that God had given every green plant and vegetation for man and woman to eat in the garden. But now there is a a shift again taking place. In this text, we see this change where man is now permitted to eat meat. This may be the one and only benefit of the fall. But, but I, I kid, but, but just, just see here the kind of tension that's now going to exist between the animals and the humans. Animals now eat people, but people also eat animals. And, and what God wants to emphasize here is even though that's true, human beings must continue to show respect and value for all life. Life is at the center of God's new creation, of God's renewed world. And notice what he says in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh. He's just told them they're allowed to eat the flesh of the animals. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And I think what informs this prohibition is the statement that Moses also writes in Leviticus 17.11. I'll put it on the screen for you. It's a, a, a verse that maybe many of you have memorized or are familiar with. Here's what he says in the Levitical law, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. There, Moses is making a link between the blood of the animal and its life. We know this biologically, that life exists because of the blood in the body. It carries all the nutrients, the oxygen, everything that is necessary for life to exist is transported through the blood. And so, in a sense, symbolically, Blood is a picture, a reminder of life as much as it's a reminder of death. And very intentionally, what God wants to draw our attention to and Noah's attention to is that when an animal's life is forfeited, when its blood is drained, it's a reminder, listen, that all is not right with the world. Sin has come into the world, and with it has come death. And that now necessitates that something must shed its blood, must give its life as a substitute so that you can be sustained and live. Don't miss that connection there. Every animal they eat sustains their physical life because that animal gave up its own life. 
This will become incredibly important, this connection in the sacrificial system, this perpetual reminder of sin and the need for atonement, blood atonement. The privilege of killing animals for food now assumed the responsibility of caring for animal life and disregard for the gift of life was actually an affront to the giver of life who has deemed all life good at the beginning of creation. There is no place in the creation order of God and in the design of God for any kind of animal cruelty Humanity is called upon to treat all life with the dignity and respect that has been given to it by God. And then we see in verse 5 and 6 something fascinating. He moves from from animals into human beings. Again, pushing uh, the, the propagation of life and the value of human life. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it, and from man... From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, here's something really fascinating here. This, this phrase uh, from uh, his fellow man in verse 5 is a really interesting phrase and is actually more literally translated from his brother. So the sense there would be something like this. Um, from his brother, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And, and if you understand or take that more literal sense of the word, here's what Moses is doing as he writes this. He's drawing us back into the story of Cain and Abel. Where Cain murdered his brother, and now what he's going to do is institute a sort of a capital punishment here. He's going to require a reckoning for the life of man, just like he did with Cain and Abel. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What the Lord is saying is that he's going to see to it that justice is done on the earth. Remember, the earth was filled with violence before the flood. It's one of the reasons why the the deluge of water comes upon the earth. And in order to protect and preserve human life, God is going to make sure justice is done for anyone who would take another human life in an unlawful way. Justice is will be done just like it was done with Cain. And what he's emphasizing here is that, remember Cain, what his fear was? As he wandered the earth, he was afraid of retribution. He was afraid that somebody was going to exact vengeance upon him. And what God is saying here is, no, I'm going to make sure that personal justice, retribution, and vengeance is not in the hands of individual men. Instead, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And again, um, many people point to this passage here and they see and hear the institution of both the death penalty and the institution of human government. So it's not an individual's responsibility to exact payment for murder. It now becomes part of the role of government. In fact, you could argue that this becomes one of the formative roles of human government. They exist primarily to protect human life, to support human life, to preserve human life. Every good government throughout history has done just that. And every wicked government throughout history has done the exact opposite.
Government has been given God-given authority to take the life of those who commit murder. And you need to see here, this is grounded in the value of human life that is made in the very image of God. That's what verse 6 tells us. I appreciate what, what commentator Kenneth Matthews has to say about this. He says this, Capital punishment is not interpreted as a threat to the value of human life, but rather is society's expression of God's wrath upon anyone who would profane the sanctity of human life. New Testament writings interpreted capital punishment as a necessary function of society where the state is defined as the divinely designated servant that administers retribution. There are some who really struggle with this concept of of the death penalty and And I get that it's a difficult one to kind of process. There are some who believe the death penalty or capital punishment is actually inhumane. But to argue against the death penalty on humane grounds is actually to argue against God's word. You see, it exists precisely because of God's humane concerns. To ignore it is actually to despise life. This was and is God's word to a a violent world. This was meant, in other words, and is meant to protect and preserve human life. It exists to promote the propagation of life. And it's fascinating, like I uh, draw your, drew your attention to at the beginning, how Moses it closes this off with a final bookend of, of life multiplying and calling people to be fruitful and to greatly increase on the earth. Now, what do we learn here? There's a lot. There's a lot. We, we can spend a lot of time uh, in this section of Scripture, but I want to just draw out a few things that I think we can learn from here. First, God wants the world to be full of people. Procreation is the plan of God. If there's one command that we as a church are determined to obey, I think this is it. Some of you have taken this overly literal interpretation. I think you are single-handedly attempting to fill the earth. Good for you. God, God bless you. This call to propagate the earth does not mean that you can't choose to stop having kids, by the way. Limit the number of kids that you have in your family. Apparently, Noah only had three. We have no indication that he has any more than the three that are mentioned in this text. But here's, here's what I do want you to see in all seriousness. This means that God loves children and he longs to fill the earth with image bearers. Human beings are still made in the image of God. God so highly values human beings. He loves people. People, human beings, are the pinnacle of his creative activity. And God so values human life, and he values life in general. Here's why, church, here's why. Because he is the God of life. He gives the breath of life. And this is such a needed corrective for us in our culture because we're living in a world that promotes the wanton destruction of human life in order to promote the comfort and convenience of human beings. I mean, it's staggering the way people view children, not as a blessing, but as a burden. It's unbelievable in our culture. I read an article this week where uh, actor Seth Rogen, he claimed that his life is happier and better overall because he and his wife decided not to have children. Here's what he said. Honestly, it's... This is a direct quote. Thank God we don't have children. We get to do whatever we want. 
What an indictment on the culture that we live in. What a sad indictment that people view children and the, the ability to bring forth life into this world as a problem, as inconvenient, as something that kind of you know, infringes upon their personal freedom. And, and that, that tells you more, listen, about where people find their happiness than it tells, tells you about anything else. I want autonomy, I want freedom, I want comfort, I want convenience, I want to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, I don't want any restrictions, I don't want anything or anyone holding me back. I mean, I'm surprised this guy is actually married. He's probably not going to be for long with this kind of mentality. And I mean that sincerely. So the idol of comfort and convenience in our cultural climate, we, we must, listen, as the church of Jesus Christ, we see life differently, don't we? And we actually need to stand out. Do you realize that the stance you take on life will actually now separate you from a large portion of our culture? It will actually enable you to project forth light in increasing darkness. We reject abortion for unplanned or planned or whatever pregnancies that now somehow are going to ruin people's lives. We reject euthanasia and you know, medical assistance in dying. We reject that. Listen, we value the beginning of life and the end of life and all of life between. This is the Christian perspective. We're people who promote the propagation of life. And the government, by the way, does not get to determine what is right and wrong in this area of life. God does. And he wants justice to be done in this world. And that, that helps us understand part of the place of government in our lives. And I want to just make a brief statement about that because I think, again, we see here the, the foundations of the institution of government. We know this, that Romans 13 tells us that we are to submit to the governing authorities, but we also know from the scriptures that they are to be ministers of righteousness who reward those who do good, and punish those who do evil. You can think here that the punishment of evil in a lot of ways has to do with how life is diminished. How, how, how those in our world and our culture want to destroy life or harm life. When we've, we've often framed it like this, that we submit to the government unless the, the government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. Anytime they violate the scriptures, anytime they call us to violate the scriptures or they command us to do something the scriptures forbid, we unashamedly and unwaveringly say no. We choose to obey God, not man. And here's what that means. Listen, if the government, let's just say the government is somehow influenced hypothetically by some external organization somewhere over in Europe that tells us that our climate footprint is getting too big and we need to stop eating meat and instead we can just put cricket powder into everything. Hy hypothetical, totally hypothetical. We can say no. No. God has given us freedom to eat meat. Praise the Lord. I'm not eating bugs. <laughs> we should reject these things on biblical grounds, on biblical principles, on biblical commands. If the government or the culture promotes and encourages 
sexual immorality, polygamy, polyamory, promiscuity in any form, if they promote it, if they push it, if they encourage it, listen, that is cultural messaging that we should reject. If the culture, if the government comes along and tells us that we need to embrace that a boy can become a girl or a girl can become a boy, we can unashamedly and unwaveringly say no. And if they say, listen, that it's wrong for you to impose your beliefs on other people, that you can no longer preach the gospel or tell people the truth of what God says and who God is, you can, without question, without any pang of conscience, say, no, I must obey God rather than man. Why? Because, listen, we, we need to pay attention to some of these things, church, because all of these things promote not the preservation or propagation of life, but the destruction of life. And God gives us a fresh start in order to promote propagation of life. Our God is the God of life. Let me make one more application. Listen, as much as we can make this about physically propagating life on the earth, we must see the spiritual parallel here for the Christian life. We are called to extend not just physical life through physical children, we are called to extend spiritual life to spiritual children. And the command here to be fruitful and multiply, I've said this many times from up here, the parallel is the great commission. We are called to be fruitful and multiply, to go out to all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded, knowing that he is with us even to the very end of the age. Church, we have one job to do. Go show people where they can find true life, life in Christ. And that leads us to the second point here. We are called to proclaim the promise of life. In verse 8 through 19, we come to, again, a familiar passage. We, We know the story of Noah, and we know what God is going to do with the rainbow. Let's read it together. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the water of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said... This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, 
These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. There's a very important word here in verse 8 that I want to just draw your attention to quickly. He says to him in verse 8 through 11, sorry, verse 9 in particular, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. The word offspring there is the word that's also translated seed, and it takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. It's a textual link here where God promises that the seed of the woman will eventually crush the head of the seed of the serpent. We're being reminded again of the plan of God, of the purpose of God, of what God is going to do to truly recreate and restore the world Eden 2.0 conditions. It's going to take one of these offspring who's in the line of the woman and the line of Shem and the line of Noah. This word is going to be picked up in other parts of Genesis. It's going to be picked up with the seed of Abraham who's going to continue to extend that line and that promise is going to be drawn like a thread through the pages of Scripture and it's going to lead us directly to Jesus. Verse 10 and 11, we saw there that we, not, we need not fear any worldwide flood. This is part of what God is proclaiming to the world. We, we talked about this briefly last week. We know that, that there's no flood fear any longer. God is not going to destroy the entire earth anymore with a flood. And so when somebody comes along and says, well, you know what? The polar ice caps aren't going, or they're going to melt and the sea levels are going to rise and eventually all the earth is going to be covered with water. No, it's not. The world's not going to be destroyed with a flood. It's going to be destroyed with fire. God has promised that this would be so. And God's going to keep this covenant, this binding, everlasting promise. And this is so, this is so, so awesome. This, the, uh, we've talked a lot again about how, how Moses, when he writes, he's a, he's a brilliant literary genius. He structures things in such a phenomenal way to emphasize certain aspects of the text. And I want you just to see again the literary brilliance of, of Moses here. He creates again what we saw last week in chapter 8, uh, this chiastic structure, okay? So look for a second at verse 12 with me. And look what it says. It says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Now look at verse 17. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so you see the book ends there? Okay, now watch, watch what he, he does here, okay? They're bracketing this intersection that's going to show us God's mercy through the, the sign of the rainbow. The next statements that correspond are verses 13 and 14. Look what it says. It says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds. Okay, now look at verse 16. Watch the parallels. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember, an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, we talked about this. Remember, we're inching our way in toward the central idea that he wants to emphasize in this text. So, so what is that? Well, look at verse 15. Notice this language again. I 
will remember my covenant. Remember last week when we looked at the, the whole flood narrative and we showed that structure that's pointing towards chapter 8, verse 1, where it says these words, but God remembered Noah. This, this is so awesome. Moses is saying, don't you understand? God is faithful. God is merciful. God can be trusted. He's going to remember his covenant. This is a promise that cannot and will not be broken. God will keep it. He's our faithful covenant-keeping God. And the rainbow that he, he puts in the sky, by the way, a, a lot of scholars think that the rainbow is, is, you know, the bow is the language that's used. It's, it's like God has taken the bow of war. Think of a bow and arrow where he has unleashed Unleashed a fury of judgment upon the earth, and now he's taking his war bow and he's hung it up on the wall or in the sky. And he's saying, Listen, my judgment has been abated. I'm no longer going to judge the earth like this again. And so he puts this bow up in the sky, this rainbow, this attestation that our God, listen, our God is a covenant-keeping God. We can take our God at his word, amen? Everything he says is true. He never wavers. And, and what that rainbow communicates to us is the most precious truth in all the Bible. That listen, though, we've been saying this all along, though our sins may be many, come on church, his mercy is more. He's merciful. He's so merciful. And, and it's, it's not lost on me, listen, that an entire movement and ideology has tried to hijack the rainbow in order to celebrate sin that will one day be judged by God. And you know what this should remind us of, though, church, is we think of the mercy of God. John Calvin, he wrote this. He said, if we got what we deserved, what we got coming to us, there would be a daily deluge of waters. That's what he said. An ongoing need to flood the world and kill all the sinners. That's what we get. That's what we deserve. But the Lord is merciful. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. In spite of human sin and violence, God has committed himself to his world. God has committed himself to life. He has promised it. And the rainbow in the sky proclaims God's promise of life. God doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live. God doesn't want you to be judged. He wants you to receive mercy. Every time you see that rainbow in the sky, that's what God's screaming to the world. It's a reminder to the remnant of God's faithfulness, but it is a warning to the wicked, listen, that God's judgment will come. It will. Common grace that points to saving grace. Common grace for the world. God's not judging the world with the flood, but here, it's pointing us towards the special or saving grace of God. Listen, those who are celebrating sin desperately need to be saved from their sin. And our God is a God who takes anybody, no matter, this is the awesome truth of the gospel, no matter how far, no matter how deep, no matter the amount, come to me. 
not too big for me. It's not beyond my power. It's not beyond my mercy. It's not beyond my grace. I can cover it all and some. God is a God who makes new beginnings. And even as he judges the earth for its corruption through a flood, in his grace he makes a new start with Noah and his family and all of the animals that are coming off the ark with him. He makes a new beginning with Noah. Listen, let me say this again. Listen, he can make a new beginning with you. And this is a new beginning. And to emphasize that, we, we see that God is faithful to his promise and to the offspring of, of Noah. The sons of Noah are all mentioned, mentioned there in verse 18 and 19. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons. And we're going to see in chapter 10 in the table of nations that all the nations of the earth come from these three individuals. The whole earth will be filled. And God wants us to remember that he remembers us. But, but I want you to see, God loves to give signs. He loves to make covenants and he loves to give signs. And I think God does the same for us, but in a new and better way, doesn't he? In a more significant way, not in a, a common way, but in a special way, God proclaims to us the promise of life. He gives to us a sign. And when we celebrate, like we will be today, the Lord's Supper, we need to see some parallels here with what he's done for Noah. We need to be reminded by the sign of the covenant that God has made with us, his people. Not the Noahic covenant, but a new and better covenant. And I just want you to hear this as, as you even begin. We've got a little bit more to go here. But as you prepare and you think ahead towards celebrating the Lord's Supper, God promises to us to give us a new beginning and to make us a new creation in Christ. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we take those elements in our hands, the bread and the, the wine or the juice, Noah should have stuck with the juice. We'll see that in a minute. But... Whenever we take those elements, they're assigned to us. Listen, they're assigned to us that God is faithful to his promise. They're assigned to us, listen, that we will never be judged in our sin if we believe in Jesus Christ. You realize that? Every time you take those, here's why you can celebrate. You, if you're in Christ, you're never going to pay for your sin. You'll never suffer the wrath of God for your sin. You'll never face the judgment you deserve. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth and he hung upon a cross in your place. He exhausted the full fury of the wrath of God so that every last drop so that there's nothing left to pour out upon you if you're in Christ Jesus. That is amazing news. That's awesome. This is the sign of the covenant that we get to, to celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper. Our sin has been erased. We're washed white as snow. But I want you to see this as well. It's both a celebration and a proclamation at the same time. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He says, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you, what, look at, what does it say? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So we celebrate it, but at the same time, we hold these signs, these symbols of what Christ has done, his broken body and his shed blood, and we are proclaiming his death. He has died for sinners. You don't have to die in your sins. You can find mercy and grace and forgiveness free of charge in Christ Jesus. Come and find life. That's what we proclaim in the Lord's death, don't we? Come and find life. He is manna from heaven. He is the bread of life. He is the fountain of living water. He is life. You come to him. You come to him. You'll find everything your weary soul has been longing for and needing. You'll find cleansing. You'll find refreshment. You'll find resurrection, life, and power. That's worth proclaiming. Lastly, with every fresh start, God calls us to pick the path of life. Pick the path of life. And this is, this is the fall. And I want you to see how Noah, like Adam, sins. Look at this, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Sound familiar? Where was Adam placed? In a garden. And he planted a vineyard. He's a gardener. Like who? Adam. He drank of the wine and became drunk. Don't miss this. What does he do with the fruit? He takes the fruit and he sins, just like Adam. And then what happens? And he lay uncovered in his tent. Do you remember what happened when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree? What is the first thing they recognize? They're naked and ashamed. They hide themselves. And here's Noah hiding in a tent. Now, this is interesting. He's here and he lay uncovered in his tent. The word, the phrase there, lay uncovered, is, is literal. He's actually, he's stone drunk. He's blackout drunk in his tent. And he's lying there uncovered. He's naked. And, and, and li- this is literal. It's actually, but, but listen, this phrase is being metaphorically extended here. You see, if you're to read through the Old Testament, what you find out is that this phrase, lay uncovered, It often is translated or means to go into exile. I want you to see the parallels here because Adam and Eve, they they immediately after they sinned were cast out of the garden and they go into exile. Well, here is Noah. He lays uncovered. Again, he's going into exile. You say, why why is this phrase metaphorically extended like this? Here's why. Because when a, a nation would capture another nation and drag them off into exile, guess what they would often do to the slaves they were dragging off into exile? They would strip them naked so that they were ashamed and humiliated as they were carted off into the foreign land. And just keep in mind that the exile in the context of Israel was always a result of sin, disobedience, and rebellion. 
And Moses is aware of all of this and is consciously using the term to warn, listen, to warn Israel of all that is going to happen to them. He's warning them about the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses writes Deuteronomy. It's, it's like a sermon. It's a second kind of retelling of the law. And, and, and he writes it as the nation of Israel is standing on the banks of the Jordan River and they're looking out into the land of Canaan and they're getting ready to go into the promised land and to conquer it and to receive all of the Lord's blessings in the land. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses lays out for them two paths. And, and he says, listen, you can have the path of life. You can have the path of blessing. You can have the path of flourishing. You can have the path of my presence with you. You will conquer and find victory and joy and satisfaction and live long in the land, but you must obey me. Or, or you can rebel and you can pick the path that leads to death. You can pick the path that will lead to your destruction. You can pick the path of disobedience. And what will happen is that you will stray from me. I will leave you. You will stray from me. You will become like all the other nations. And eventually you will be exiled from the promised land. You will be dragged off as slaves. And he's warning them about the dangers of breaking the covenant. And you can just hear him saying through these pages, listen, pick the path of life. I love what Proverbs 15, 24 says. On the screen it says this, the path of life leads upward for the prudent that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. It's the path of life. Psalm 16, 11 one of my favorite verses in the Bible, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Life is always with God. Life is always walking in obedience to God. We know this sin always brings a kind of death. It brings pain and suffering. It never takes us where we want to ultimately go and I want to just encourage you, listen, as we think about Noah lying stone drunk in his tent, don't think about it too long, but just think about this and take a moment to process and consider how this intersects with your life and provides great warnings and yet even great hope. I, I can't help but, but think as I read, listen, this is the same Noah that we read about in chapter 6 who is a man who is righteous in his generation. He is blameless in his generation. This is a man who walks with God. He walked with God in obedience, building the, the ark as he was mocked by the world for a hundred years and then he gets off the ark and what does he do? This foolishness. He is righteous in his generation, and yet he is a man who sins, even grievous sin. And, and we ought to learn, listen, that none of us is immune from grievous, shameful sin. Even if you're 600 years old. A passage like this teaches us that everybody, listen, everybody has things of which they are ashamed 
everybody. Adam did, Noah did, Moses did, I mean, David did, Peter did, I do, and so do you. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has areas of our life where we look back with deep regret, deep sorrow, and deep shame. Not one of us has a spotless record. Not one of us has a perfect life. Not one of us has a life good enough to merit salvation or the presence of God. The only one exempt from this is Jesus Christ. And this, this also shows us, listen, that the flood may have renewed the earth, but it has not renewed the human heart. It's still desperately sick and, and wicked, and we need our hearts changed. We need new hearts. And, and interestingly here, the focus on this passage is not as much about Noah. It's actually about his son Ham. We've already read that he's the father of Canaan. You say, why keep mentioning this? He's going to mention it again in a minute. Moses, just keep this in mind again. Moses is writing to the generation that is going to conquer Canaan. And so this text is actually communicating to them that they are going, going to go in there to visit God's wrath upon the Canaanites, and that that wrath is actually due in part to what Ham does here to his father. You say, well, what does he do? Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, there is lots of speculation about what is happening here. Um, some suggest that this is a possible sexual assault or some kind of same-sex behavior going on, and, and that's, that's possible. The, the language can often be used in this way. I'm not convinced that's, that's entirely correct, and I think there's some good textual arguments against that. Here's what I would say. We seem to get the answer from the text itself, from, from more, more maybe helpfully, from the remedy from what the, the other two brothers do. So what do they do? Let's, let's look at the next verse. Then Shem, Shem sorry, and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. I think we find what Ham did wrong by contrasting it with what Shem and Japheth did right. Ham, I think, exalted in the shameful display of his father's nakedness and sin, and then he goes outside and he broadcasts it in order to humiliate his father. He's not caring about his father. He's mocking his father. He's, he's showing utter disregard and contempt for his father. He's glorying in the shame of his father's sin to the point where he wants to go tell his brothers he thinks this is great. His brothers, in contrast, are, are honorable. And so what do they do? They, 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 in a form of rebuke, they put this sheet across themselves. They dare not look. They dare not see. They want to honor their father and respect their father. And they want to cover their father's sins. Listen, love covers, does it not, a multitude of sins. It, 
And, and it's interesting here because th- listen to what happens. Noah, verse 24, he awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Uh, some, somebody must have told him what had happened. Obviously, he finds out. And then look at what happens, verse 25. He said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. Notice the curse language. Just like the garden. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Kenneth Matthews again says, Ham's reproach was not in seeing his father unclothed, though this was a shameful thing, but in his outspoken delight at his father's disgraceful condition. He's dishonored his father, and in the ancient world, insulting one's parents was a serious matter that warranted the extreme penalty of death in some instances. It was an abrogation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And we hear this, we see this curse, and we're kind of like, well, this is a little bit of an overreaction. But that's because we don't understand honor and shame the way they did in biblical times and the way we should today. You see, to dishonor your father is to dishonor God. Fathers represent the structure of authority, the patriarchy, the the headship, the very authority of God himself enacted in your life. So when you look at that authority and you mock it, you're actually saying that you don't respect authority. And to do so can actually invite divine consequences because the crime is not against the parent alone, but is viewed as contempt for God's divinely ordained order in creation itself. So so a heart that says, I I don't respect my father, in fact, I will mock him and I will get others to join in my mocking, is a heart that says, I don't honor God, I don't fear God, I will mock God, and I will encourage others to join me in mocking God as well. It's a heart that says, I don't care about God, I don't need God, I don't want God, because I am God. But listen, God will not be mocked. Children, listen up. Honor your father and mother. This is a serious commandment. It's so serious that the New Testament picks it up in Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 3. And listen to what Paul says. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Honor your father and mother, kids, not just because of the consequences for rebellion, although you should be scared of those, but because of the blessings for obedience. This is the first command with a promise. And you, you, you got to hear what's promised. Long life in the land. You know what he's saying? Your life will be better. Your life will be more joyful. You will be spared so much agony and pain. Because listen, all that comes from rebelling against authority, God-given authority, is pain, destruction, and death. That's all that comes from it. Some of us know that really, really well. And I just want you to know, kids, listen, honor your father and mother even when they do shameful, regretful things. This comes in the context of Noah's own sin. Don't mock it. Don't exalt in in the sins of your parents. Try to cover it. Try not to see it. Try to continue to honor your, your, your father and mother. Let your love cover a multitude of their sins. They, they will have plenty. 
Because to honor your father and mother is to honor God. To accept and honor the authorities in your life, listen, loved ones, is to accept and honor the authority of God in your life. And so Noah announces this curse over Canaan. And he connects this back then intentionally, linguistically, to the curse of the serpent. He says, Ham and Canaan, they are of the serpent. They're rebellious. They don't want to live under God's authority. There are two paths in life. It's the path of the curse, the path of blessing. It's the path of death, the path of life. The two faithful brothers would receive this blessing of an oracle that the tents of Shem would be expanded. And and the implication here is that they are going to flourish and thrive in life. And and this idea of Japheth sharing, uh, being under the tent, it shows the expansive nature of God's blessing over these people. And many people see in this, listen, the promise of God one day to extend the family of God through Abraham and by faith to all those who have believed in Jesus Christ. The path of life is the path of faith in Jesus. And then we read, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Every one of us, like Noah, will die. The only question we need to answer is, which path are we on? Will we die in our sins and suffer under the curse forever or will we we die in Christ and live in his blessings forever?